The Urbanist is brought to you in association with the Department of Culture and Tourism, Abu Dhabi. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is a beacon of hope and inspiration. A catalyst to spark growth and collaboration with museums and experiences, where art and science and nature and technology coexist. The belief of Abu Dhabi that culture is the backbone of our society. Stay tuned for a special episode of the show, in which you can hear His Excellency Mohammed Khalifa Al-Mubarak explain exactly why and how Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is the perfect place to collaborate, create, and innovate. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi, proud partner of The Urbanist on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle 24's programme all about the built environment and how to make our cities better places to live in. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up... Our cities are such canvases of advertising and sounds and lights and colours and they are all competing for our attention and that can be almost as much of a barrier for an autistic person to enter that space as, for example, a set of stairs would be for someone on a wheelchair. Cities belong to all of us, but are they designed with everyone in mind? This week, we look at some of the ways in which cities can present barriers for their people and how research and technology is helping to remove them. We explore an organisation helping to map pedestrian routes with needs in mind rather than speed. We attempt to combat sensory overload in urban areas and we investigate a creative wayfinding solution for those with visual impairments. All that coming up over the next 30 minutes, right here on The Urbanist, with me, Andrew Tuck. When you open your favourite mapping app to find a way to walk from A to B, you're usually provided with the quickest possible route to your destination. While useful, the issue with most of these apps is that they are unable to tell you details regarding the safety and accessibility of their suggested directions. Think curb heights and incline, for example. Anat Caspi is the director of the Tasker Centre for Accessible Technology at the University of Washington, whose mission is to develop, translate and deploy open-source, universally accessible technologies. One of their recent projects is Access Map, a software that provides accessible sidewalk and footpath routing directions based on your personal mobility profile. Earlier, Anna joined the urbanist Carlos Rebello to discuss the challenges of providing data for those with different needs. Carlos began by asking where the requirement for a tool like Access Map comes from. As it turns out, cities and municipalities don't typically collect detailed information about their pedestrian paths. And consequently, a lot of applications downstream like Google Directions, Apple Maps, all those mass-produced routing applications don't have the capacity to integrate whatever data is out there in a consistent standardized way. So they completely gloss over the pedestrian ways. 
So whenever you use the mobile app for routing and you press that little button that shows a human walking, typically what you're getting are inferences about the pedestrian ways that are completely dependent on their roadways. And so a lot of the times these mass produced apps just say, oh, if there's a road here, we'll just route the person alongside it. It might tell you or indicate to you which side of the street to walk on, but it's not based on the fact that an actual infrastructure piece is there. Rather, it's just intending to demarcate, you know, what would be the shortest path for you to follow. But in many occasions, especially in places like Seattle that became incorporated in a progressive kind of way, we took over more and more townships, some of which did not have sidewalk infrastructure. And so a lot of times these routers will just indicate to you, you should walk here, but it doesn't mean that you'll actually meet a sidewalk there or won't give you other information about what you might meet there. What type of surface would this be? Would I meet tree uproots? What is the width of this path? Will there be curb ramps? And also, would this sidewalk be connected to some other piece of infrastructure that I can continue my path to? All of these questions are not answered by these mass-produced routing applications, and this is what we're trying to ameliorate. I really liked uh, when I went to the website of the center, the line that you have designing for the fullness of human experience, which I think really speaks to this need for our cities to be equitable between everyone and to indeed have this accessibility to tackle some of the mobility challenges that part of the population without this sort of technology are not as easily as able to navigate through the city. Do you have an idea of the numbers of how many people are affected by mobility challenges? We have some ideas of how many people experience difficulties walking a quarter mile, things like that. So supposedly, according to estimates and statistics in the EU and UK, that is 100 million. In the US, that's about 75 million. But we know that these are underestimates because of the nature of data collection when it comes to people with disabilities and the very medical model that we have been using. However, as you noted, the fullness of human experience, we know that one in four people will experience disability at some point in their lives. And we also know that many more people experience some kind of disablement throughout their lives, which may be temporary. And so the fullness of human experience actually tries to convey the fact that we all are part of this. It's not just exclusive to these statistics or estimates of some subportion of the population. And in fact, when we started publishing Access Map, the populations that engaged with Access Map first were people pushing prams and not necessarily the population we expected to have a lot to say about this topic. <laughs> what does that tell you about the current mobility challenges, not necessarily for people who are not as mobile, but in a sense as pedestrians and the way cities are designed? What is your main takeaway when you hear all those people seeking to use the apps? 
I think the primary takeaway is that humans are not homogenous and we are not slow moving cars. And unfortunately, many of the mass produced apps model us in that way. Slow moving cars are essentially, they have one predominant requirement about the environment, which is having a paved, maybe somewhat paved path of a particular width. And that's about it. But as humans, we approach the environment in variable ways. It is inappropriate to glum us all into one grouping <laughs> and consider that our needs, preferences, and wants about the built environment are all the same. And so as we're building more and more and standardizing more and more information about the pedestrian ways, Access Map is really just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to these types of applications that become available when the data is consistent and reliable. So for instance, I experience a lot of allergies. And so having the information about where spruce trees are found and I would like to avoid them would mean that I would be able to personalize my path in exactly the same way that we currently customize the paths for people who have specific requirements regarding elevation changes, both in the up and downhill directions for people who have requirements about curb ramps, etc. So we would be able to fully customize the kinds of trips that people have when the data is available for a full urban region, for example. It's a mammoth amount of information that's being collected and mapped for citizens. I'm wondering if by helping to bring attention to the inaccessibility of certain areas and even the way routes can be taken to avoid certain trees, as you just mentioned, or certain intersections, do you hope that by collecting all this information and exploring all these other ways of moving around, that this could motivate local governments and cities to improve the way they build pedestrian infrastructure around their cities? Absolutely. We actually did a recent study with transportation planners and urban planners to try to understand why we have been so behind on improving the pedestrian ways, specifically in the US where the American with Disabilities Act not just recommends, but federally demands that these municipalities collect this type of data and use that to assess where we are in terms of accessibility and also create a plan for improvement. And what we found is that the lack of data standardization and the consistency really impacts their ability to make these assessments and then also to come up with prioritization schemas, right? Because if you have this data and you have it consistently across the entire city, then you really are able to point out where failures occur, where there are bottlenecks. And it's not just about aggregating the specific point-wise information, like out of the 16,000 possible curb ramp locations, only six of them are, are curb ramped. It's really about fully understanding the paths around those areas and how they are used and what it might bring access to, right? So if there's some forlorn 
corner that is not curb ramped, that might not be your priority because it may not be relevant or important in connecting to neighborhoods, connecting people to services, connecting people to different kinds of opportunities like school opportunities, health care opportunities, etc. So having the full pedestrian pathways and network is really crucial in exactly what you're saying. The complete understanding of the transportation network so that we're able to fully evaluate where these improvements are needed and how to compare one against the other. Anat Caspi there from the Tasker Centre for Accessible Technology, speaking with Monocle's Carlotta Rebello. And you can get your city involved in mapping accessible ways by visiting the Tasker Centre's website. Now, the World Health Organization estimates that around one in a hundred children in the world experience autism. The ways in which autism spectrum disorders present themselves vary widely, but many symptoms appear at odds with modern city life. For those with autism, an aversion to sensory stimulation is common, and as anyone who has taken a train in rush hour or walked a busy high street knows, sensory overload is a city speciality. So how do we build autism-friendly cities? Well, I'm lucky to be joined today down the line from Cairo by an expert in designing for autism. Magda Mustafa is an associate professor of design at the American University in Cairo and is the author of Autism Aspects Design Guidelines, the world's first research-based design framework for autism worldwide. Magda, thank you for joining me. Now, as we know, autism is a hugely varied condition that manifests itself in many different ways. But many of these manifestations can make living in cities very difficult. So how do we begin to try and design an autism-friendly city? It is very complicated. And ideally, it would be something that's individualized, which isn't possible on the scale of the hundreds and thousands of millions of people that occupy cities. But we had talked about this idea of an autism-friendly city. And I like this word friendliness because it's a little softer than the notions of inclusion and accessibility. And I think it's a good aspiration to have, but it begins with access. So what an autism-friendly city needs to look like really needs to begin with ensuring that people have access to all of its spaces. And When you think of cities from the sensory lens of autism, they really are these very dense, complicated, very layered, almost sensory collages of experiences. And they aren't very well curated because there isn't one hand that's deciding what all those sensory inputs are and how they're put together. So that can become very much a barrier to access because you have all these sounds and sights and smells coming at you all at once in very unexpected and unpredictable ways, which can be very stressful for someone on the spectrum. So I almost call it the sensory colonization of our space. Our cities are such canvases of advertising and content and streaming and sounds and lights and colors and they're all competing for our attention. And that can be almost as much of a barrier for an autistic person to enter that space as, for example, a set of stairs would be for someone on a wheelchair. It can be that overwhelming. You're beginning to give us some interesting examples there because you have this aspects design index for autism-friendly design. 
give us one or two practical things that you encourage people who are thinking about designing with people with autism in mind to do? Well, aspects, a lot of times it is referred to as guidelines. I think of it more of like a framework, maybe, of how we think about space. So, for example, one of the concepts of aspects is escape. And that is a very immediate thing that curators and designers of space can plug into space very easily. So, for example, if I'm thinking on the level of the city that's so sensory overwhelming, one of the things we can do, and it's actually one of the things I'm currently experimenting with, is create what I call an escapescape, a landscape of escape plugins of space throughout a city that people can retreat to as these little sensory refuges. And they can take all sorts of forms. They can be related to nature and parks and our natural environment. They can work as transitions as we move from very high stimulating things like train stations and transportation infrastructure to places where we need to be quieter and more focused, like schools or workplaces. You can plug in these little pop-up spaces of sensory refuge that would be a little quieter, a little more contained, wouldn't have a lot of visual stimulation, might have some tactilities that people could adjust their sensory recalibration with and so on. So that's one way I think that we can really effectively make our cities a little bit more accessible for individuals on the spectrum. Now, who's picking up these ideas at the moment? Because you have a great website, but I was intrigued that it seems initially that these ideas are being adopted probably by educational establishments or places which are particularly attuned to the needs of people with autism. Are those the early adopters? Those are the earliest adopters because that is where the most immediate need was. This is very much an emerging field. Really, I got into this work in 2002, which is around the time that other researchers call the peak cohort. That's where we were hearing about there's a boom in autism, the autism epidemic. It really was just a deeper understanding of what autism was. But the children that were being diagnosed around that time needed immediate support in the K-12 school system. And that's why the very first adopters of this kind of thinking was K-12 basic education. But now as that cohort is growing up, I'm becoming more and more involved in projects that have gone along that lifespan. So we just finished a project called the Autism Friendly University Design Guide with Dublin City University in Ireland and a wonderful organization called As I Am in Ireland that's an autism self-advocacy group to support students on the autism spectrum and who are neurodiverse that are now in higher education. There is interest in the workplace environment as well to create workplaces that are more accessible, particularly in certain industries like the tech world, where there's some emerging research that tells us there's a significantly larger representation of individuals who identify as neurodiverse or on the autism spectrum in that business sector. So Other places are starting to become aware. Of course, housing and residence has always been an issue, but that's more on the individualized level. And I was just talking to some colleagues the other day and saying I'm anticipating soon, maybe in a decade or so, that there will be the need for autism-friendly supported living and assisted living communities for seniors as that generation of individuals who were diagnosed early on in the 2000s where that awareness was beginning to grow have now had a lifetime of support and are going into aging and supported living communities. And already people designing for other sensory and cognitive challenges like dementia and Alzheimer's are already adopting 
some of the constructs of aspects like acoustical environments and visual environments that are also supportive of those needs. And finally, can you tell me, we're talking to you in Cairo, a city I would imagine has a fair amount of noise and clatter on the streets. Is this kind of design at the moment perhaps a luxury for Western cities, a wealthy, which have, as you say, institutions really built up for people with autism? Or do you think that all cultures could adapt and adopt some of these, these measures? I think all cultures could adapt and adopt some of these measures because I don't think they're necessarily more expensive. I think the luxury lies in the awareness, not so much in the implementation of the solutions, because the solutions themselves don't necessarily have to be more expensive. On the contrary, I always think that good design is actually less expensive than bad design. And when you put these sorts of tactics and infrastructures in places that have the greatest need, you actually have the biggest impact. And that mitigates costs downstream of support and education and mental health support and other things if you just design things more intentionally and more supportively from the outset. My thanks to Magda Mustafa joining me down the line from Cairo. We know that good wayfinding can be one of the hallmarks of a successful city. But for many with visual impairments, when it comes to finding your way around, a lovely legible sign on the wall just won't cut it. One company that's trying to combat this challenge is Right Here, who provides an app which offers audio signposting to aid navigating spaces. But could this technology be scaled up to the size of a city? Well, I'm joined now by Idan Meyer, one of the founders of Right Here, to learn more. Idan, thank you for speaking to us today. Can you tell us a little more about how your app functions? The easiest way to think about it is like talking science. That's basically how we started that. What if science could speak? But basically, it's a system that we developed that has three main components. One is the user interface, which is just an app. It's a free app. The second component is the little beacons that we install at the facilities, uh, which are accessible. And thirdly, it's an online cloud to control and manage uh, all of this. Ultimately, the technology allows our users to hear audio descriptions of the world uh, around them. And tell me, so if I have the app on my phone and I go into a venue that has one of these talking signs, how do I access the information and what kind of information would it give me when I come to one of these talking signs? So it's done automatically. The beacons that we install at the facilities are basically Bluetooth devices, so our smartphones can get the signal. Once that's done, automatically, as I said, they'll start describing the environment for you, basically answering questions like, where am I? what is here, what's around me. And I'll give you an example. You are at the main entrance to McDonald's. We're working with all of them in Israel for now. The open hours are Monday to Friday between this hour to that hour. And then no matter where you point with your smartphone, like looking around with it, it will let you know what is there and what distance, like the counter is in 10 meters or uh, the restrooms are in the other direction, five meters and things from that sort. How did this idea come to you? What was the beginning of your story with the company? The beginning, I would say, the story of my life, which I'm getting lost wherever I go. <laughs> I'm really bad with acquiring orientation. So I, I'm very familiar with the frustration of not knowing where to go. And we got into this with a lot of luck. We were working on a different concept, at the time concept of couponing for stores, for retail stores. We've been working on that for about a year and after a year, we were missing something more purposeful, I would say, or with bigger social impact around it. 
And then we thought, okay, we're a great team. We have a great technology behind us. What if instead of providing coupons to shoppers when going to stores, we'll just let them know what store it is, what's around in that stores, et cetera. We started to check it with people who are blind or visually impaired. A lot of them I can call best friends today. They fall in love. They were really amazed by the possibilities around it. We were pretty surprised by the acceptance of the retailers to have something like that, even more in some cases than the couponing uh, solutions. This is how it all started about almost six years ago. And tell me, when you contact, you know, for example, a fast food chain in Israel or when you contact a department store, how easy is it to engage them in this conversation? Are they concerned about cost or how many people will actually use the technology? Or has something changed? Are people more aware now of disability that they're keen to help? So they're definitely more aware. I, I would say, you know, one of the advantages of playing in this field is that when you speak to such partners or such restaurants in this case, usually they find a lot of interest because it's very different than what they're usually being pitched up, right? It's not something that's, you know, necessarily going to, you know, improve the menu or, or the conversion on the website or things like that. It's something that they never usually never thought about. Like, how would a blind shopper or visitor find his way around in the restaurant. Like, this is a question we never thought about. Now, obviously, the awareness around this has been increasing and still increased uh, year over year. So they usually want to try it and go further than that. There's, I guess, different reasons for that. So one is first, I guess, it's just the right thing to do, right? Just like they have a ramp for people using wheelchairs or just like they have any other accessibility feature in their restaurant you know, just a matter of, of awareness. Now that they are aware there is solutions, yeah, they do want to do the right thing, at least many of them. You know, secondly, is the fact that effectively they can open up the doors to more people, right? I mean, if people cannot find your restaurant and their way around, they're not necessarily going to come there. That's true for restaurants, but that's true for any other facility when you think about it. So you're effectively opening up the doors to more people. Obviously, it also has the impact of the, the branding and the messaging of these different brands. And in some cases, I can even say that it can actually, in one way or another, save them dollars. You know, that comes relevant in places where there, there is a person who is guiding the visitor around, right? And you can find that sometimes in public transportation places, like in the train, or even in supermarkets. And tell me, without this technology, up until now, what, what have people had to do when they arrive at a venue or store? Is it ask for help? Are there other technologies out there that are trying to do something similar to you? What's the options for somebody who has visual impairment? There are different alternatives. I would say what's the biggest alternative, which all different apps and technologies are really uh, fighting for, if you will, is the human factor. Most people these days, people who are blind or visually impaired, and by the way, people with other orientation challenges, we're not talking only about the blind and visually impaired community. When you ask them how do you go to the mall or how do you go to uh, wherever, it's usually always with somebody. Usually the answer is always with somebody. There is someone's going with them. The statistics show that the most people who are blind or visually impaired specifically can remember about five to six different places with a mental map in their head. So they know by heart where to go. When you think about your daily life, there's much more places you go. And for those places, usually to go there, it's usually with another person. This is exactly what we and I guess some of our alternatives are trying to change and changing. The thing is, you know, it is takes time. It is takes time until a facility turns accessible. It takes time until the community have the awareness that it's there and, and the confidence to start using it. 
in our case, I'm very proud to say that it is uh, it is growing rapidly, but it is still takes some time. What are the next steps for you? Are you imagining, because it sounds like most of these things are at the moment connected to a venue of a specific space. Is it possible to map a whole city with beacons? How deep could you potentially go? Absolutely. So in our case, we're currently mostly focusing on on the small uh, spaces, I would say, indoor spaces. Uh, but we already have a lot of uh, experience in bigger ones and even with cities. I can tell you about a project we've done with the city of Tel Aviv, where we've kind of decided to do the first accessible street. Uh, we went to the, the main street of Tel Aviv. And we played the beacons all around the street. We also done that in some of the bus stops there. So it was integrations with the bus authorities there to know what buses are coming to these bus stops, et cetera, and their schedule. So I would say this, you know, in the outdoor space, we have GPS. Right here also have a designed, accessible by design experience in the outdoor space. Obviously, you know, Google Maps doing a pretty good job as well and Apple Maps as well. The difference is usually with the most mainstream apps, the accessibility component comes as an afterthought rather than, you know, by design. And, and therefore, the experience is a bit different, but it is it is gives some level of solution. The way we see it is, yeah, is the world as a whole, not just for certain sectors or certain places. But yeah, working with the cities as well, working with the public transportation authorities as well. We've done a little bit uh, also in Europe, in France, in the metro stations. Absolutely. My thanks to Eden Meyer, co-founder of Right Here, for speaking to us today. And that's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. Make sure you keep an eye out for more urbanism stories in the latest issue of Monocle magazine, available in all good newsstands or, of course, by subscribing at monocle.com. Today's episode was produced by Carla Trebello and David Stevens. And David also edited the show. And to play you out this week, well, here's Leisure Society with Fight for Everyone. Thank you for listening, city lovers. (laughs) 